On my podcast this week, I'll be chatting to Henry Dimbleby, MBE, co-founder of Leon Restaurants and cookery writer. Even though Henry's mother is the famous cookery writer, Jocelyn Dimbleby, Henry's love of food started not as you would have thought. It was only when working as a management consultant, traveling up and down the motorways with his colleague, John Vincent, did they bond over their dear love for the delicious but life-destroying fried chicken and various hamburgers. Intrigued by the difficulty of finding tasty, nutritious fast food, they resolved to do something about it. And so Leon was born. Henry has since left the day-to-day of Leon and is now using his huge energy, entrepreneurial drive and passion for food to help improve children's school dinners. In 2012, he was asked by the government to produce a blueprint for improving school food and food education in Britain. So he produced the School Food Plan, one of the biggest shake-ups of school food for a generation. I had the absolute pleasure of meeting Henry in Dalston, where we spoke about the early days of founding Leon, the struggles that can come when handing over the reins of your business, the mythical work-life balance, and how to use your entrepreneurial skills to do what just has to get done in society. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down. Where we're going, you won't need to bring your frown. I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Back in 2006, I founded Not On The High Street for my kitchen table. And since then, I've gone on to launch Holly & Co., I'm the UK ambassador of Creative Small Businesses, and I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. My dream is to help everybody start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the best way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to my favourite small businesses, entrepreneurs and those who simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Hi, Henry. We finally meet. I know you Both our diaries have been a little bit of a nightmare getting to this point, but I'm so happy that we've made it work. We met a few years ago now, actually, in my kitchen when my husband, it was an entrepreneur's dinner, and my husband had the horrific job of cooking supper for you. I cannot tell you the nerves that were in the house for weeks before you arrived. (laughs) Um, And I was just the host, but poor Frank had to actually deliver a meal for the king of good fast food. And especially as we had all your cookbooks and we were completely in awe. So there's this monumental photo that you and I um, took at the end where your bowl was empty and Frank now has it as his bookmark. (laughs) So, um, So now we're here in your offices and there's so much I'd love to talk to you about. I'm a Leon girl. We have one in Richmond and often our family can be eating the halloumi wraps on a Saturday lunchtime. So thank you so much for talking to me today. Not at all. It's an absolute pleasure. It was delicious, the food. I would love to just kick off and hear the story firsthand of how Leon came about. I guess it depends how far back you want to go. Should we go? I can go back to 1980. Please, let's go back. So my business partner, John, and I, in the 80s, both loved fast food. I used to like Burger King because of the flame-grilled burger. Uh, and he rather, <laughs> I think, rather lower rent, used to like McDonald's. <laughs> and uh, he, he apparently used to, his dad, who is called Leon, and I'm sure we'll come on to that, told me that John, before, they used to take him to McDonald's before he went back to school. And John got so excited that he'd lie on the floor, waving his arms and legs at the kind of thrill of going to McDonald's. And for me, it was Putney High Street, uh, and again, before I went back to school, I go to the cinema and then go to Burger King. And uh, the Burger King was much more exciting than uh, than the cinema. And I, at the time, actually, they had this thing where you had to say, where you, if you went up to the counter and you bought a Whopper and you said, it's flaming tasty, then they gave you another one for free. And it was like so, <laughs> it was my first kind of experience of social embarrassment. It was like, can I face the embarrassment of saying they're flaming t- tasty out in public? in Putney High Street in order to get a free burger. But anyway, fast food is exciting and it was fun and thrilling and tasty. And then you grow up and you realise that 
you know, it's it, it's delicious, and then makes you fall asleep and feel depressed, and and it's uh, and eventually kills you, and that's maybe not as exciting. <laughs> and so I then went on to I went to school, went to university, did physics and philosophy. So I kind of always had this slightly kind of arts and kind of left brain, right brain thing going on. And then I was a chef, and then I was a gossip columnist, and then I uh, met John at Bain & Company, the consultancy firm, and we spent a lot of time driving to and from a client in Newbury, eating either, you know, that, that thing of standing in front of a neon-lit chiller cabinet of kind of cold sandwiches, thinking which is the least offensive option, or delicious, <laughs> go to KFC, happy days delicious but then feel guilty and greasy and and as i said depressed and uh fat and we kind of started talking about whether there was you know just joking about whether there was a better way of doing fast food but anyway we talked about it and then i was out in japan working for bain and i decided i'd had enough and i rang john and said look i'm gonna leave and i'm gonna try and set up this place that does good fast food just so i thought it'd be polite to let you know <laughs> um, <laughs> And he said, well, okay, I'm going to leave too, and I'm going to do it with you. And that is, you know, that's kind of, that was the genesis of it. It was one of those businesses, I think, like most businesses, that was founded um, from just a belief that you wanted, a selfish belief that you wanted something, and therefore someone else might want something too. We spent time in car parks, drawing out kitchens uh, with chalk and like work out what it might look. We had literally no idea what we were doing. Um, we did a business plan. We raised some money and we opened at Carnaby Street in, uh, on the 14th of July, 2004. And it was a fucking disaster. That first day it was an absolute nightmare. So we had, we'd also got Allegra McEverdy, who was an old childhood friend of mine, was the chef. Uh, and she came in to found it with us. And we had this kind of enormous menu you could get white wraps or brown wraps you could have on a plate or you could have to take away da, 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 da. and we realized immediately that this was completely undeliverable and we kind of walked up and down the street hyperventilating yeah 20 times that day thinking what are we going to do and then uh, we closed early and i think we cut the menu down to about half what it was and we opened up the next day and then Gradually, it was, I think it was taking £7,000 a week. And we were thinking, you know, if we get to 10 or something, can we make money? And then we won in, I got a call from the food critic, Jay Rayner, as I was walking to work down Oxford High Street saying, you've just wanted to let you know you've been uh, made the best new restaurant in the UK. And this had been won by the Woolsey the year before the kind of massive grand <laughs> restaurant. We had our thousand square foot cafe in uh, Carnaby Street that didn't make any money. I didn't know that anyone had noticed, really. So it was unbelievable emotion. I burst into tears. I'm not sure if Jay knows that yet or if I managed to cover it. But then that came out and we went from doing, overnight we doubled our revenue, we went to doing 15 or 17 or 18 or something. Wow. And then we thought, okay, this might actually work. And now that site does 30, 40 grand a week. And you said the name Leon. Tell me about that, where that came about. Yeah, so we were, I've still got the business plan. I can share it to you after this. The working title was Seasons Restaurants. Just a terrible <laughs> name. But I, mean, I think we didn't actually really want to call it that. We just had to have a name for the business plan. That's, that's what people gave money to. They decided to give money to a place that was called Seasons Restaurants. And then when we were designing the sign we thought we'd better get a better name. And actually, I've discovered this from other people who do retail businesses, which is, it seems to me that about half the businesses decide what they're going to call and they actually have to get someone to make the sign because that's the first time you actually have to commit you to it. You actually have to yeah. visualise it. Yeah, and you have to get someone to, like, paint it. You know, yes. so you need yeah. to have a name because yes. they can't, you know, can't, <laughs> can't change fudge it. it. Yeah, can't fudge <laughs> it. And um, we wanted it to be something that was not propositional. So if you think about McDonald's versus Burger King, Burger King, it tells you what it is, whereas McDonald's is not propositional. It's just a, it's just a name. And we wanted something that people could, over time, that A, didn't fix you too much. You know, we could have called ourselves Rap King, and then like, <laughs> it might have turned out that raps weren't a very good thing or people didn't like them or whatever. So we wanted something which gave you the flexibility to evolve, but also which people could 
uh, kind of uh, put their own values into, could hold as their own and fill with their kind of own emotional attachments. And we felt propositional names. You know, there are places like vital ingredient or neutralicious or, you know, that kind of thing. We think they're kind of actually a bit of a barrier to forming a relationship. You know, you wouldn't marry someone called great wife. Oh, well, you might actually. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. See if someone should name themselves great wife. See if, like, if you're single. <laughs> call yourself great wife see what happens um so uh, then we wrote down names of everyone we we knew and leon is john's dad and it is a really nice looking name graphically mm -hmm. it's yeah very attractive it's got a kind of mediterranean warm feel but it's not uh, you know religiously it could be Jewish, Christian, Muslim, it kind of doesn't have a particular country. So we quite liked this kind of slightly exotic, but not too exotic, beautiful looking name. And so we chose Leon. Better than David. Um, <laughs> Ready for the sign painter. <laughs> we always say, Ready if we do another one, we can call it, as I said to dad, we do another one, we'll call it David. Don't worry. It's not a slight on you. Um, yeah, so that's where Leon came from. And, and then John had this idea, which I think, John's background, he was PNG mm -hmm. um, beforehand. So he was very, he's absolutely brilliant at the branding and the proposition. And he had the idea of two things. One was not having a brand. So if you look at Leon... We write it in a number of different fonts, in a number of different colours. That used to be almost infinite, and it's now slightly more restrictive. But still, you know, people told us this was a very, very stupid thing to do. Yes, but I can we, imagine. But we did it because we liked the, the sense of it being natural and organic. And then we had this other thing of having a base kind of natural layer of the wood, the brown paper, the concrete, with this kind of carnival of colour on top. So if you see a Leon bag, even though it's different every time, it's very recognisable as a Leon mm -hmm. bag because mm -hmm. you have this combination of this mm -hmm. very natural brand and the sticker. And then the stickers are all based on kind of fruit stickers from the uh, early 20th century because we like the idea of rather than manufacturing, again, rather than a brand where you manufacture something, the idea of just kind of selecting good stuff from nature and, and then kind of giving it to your customers. Wow. So that was kind of where the whole wow. Leon and the branding originally came from. I love a line that I heard you say, which was, what would McDonald's in heaven be? What if God made fast food? Your tagline is the future of fast food. Leon has a strong mission, a very strong purpose. Do you think that is vital to the success of a business? And can you tell me more about that? I think some kind of purpose purpose in the um in the founder is very important i think it's very hard it's so hard to start up a business or i find it so hard to other my friend easier but you have no. but certainly everyone i talk everyone <laughs> i talk to um so it's so hard that you need to have something that gives you the energy and the stubbornness to keep going um and i actually think you know also a business partner. I mean, I'm amazed by people who kind of do solo things because the kind of tag team, we used to kind of think of ourselves sometimes like Big Daddy and Giant Haystacks, the kind of tag team wrestlers. Like when one person's energy is just, they're just ready to give up, the other one comes in and picks them up. And so the idea, the kind of purpose behind it, first of all, we wanted it for ourselves. And then we really were interested in the idea of fast food. We liked the idea of being really the, the kind of salt, sweet and sour, the vinegarness of using the word fast food and not shying away from yes. that. And the fact that a lot of people say, you can't call it fast food, fast food is bad food. And out of that came the idea of revolutionizing fast food. And then this idea of, which came out of kind of what would Jesus do? You know, that kind of WWJD. Yes. And they were like, well, well, what would fast food be like in heaven? So you'd have it, you know, if you had your art class of Michelangelo, you'd want to have something kind of uh, to a bite to eat before you went, but you wouldn't want to sit down in a, in you know the Wolsey of heaven uh, you want something quick and what would it be like would it be like fast food it would come down shoots but it would be served by angels and the food would be natural and you know etc so that kind of idea grew up and then I think the central to the purpose the other thing that has been critical to us which was sometimes difficult because we're English one of the things about fast food is that it is the defining things that people know about fast food is it, it's a chain and they're global chains and so we said from day one 
we want to be a global chain. We think that there will be three or four people who in 20, 30 years' time are have thousands of restaurants serving good fast food and we want to be one of those. And, you know, that's difficult because it's quite an arrogant thing to say in a way. But it was essential to... the Every decision you make is then affected by that. So we have a determination to overthrow the bad fast food and everything in our brand needs to be about being a chain. And then the other interesting thing that happens, and I think it's why at the moment when casual dining is having a really tough time, that we're doing kind of okay, is that every time we opened a restaurant, it reinforced the brand. It made the brand stronger because the brand promise was we're going to be a chain. Whereas if you're a kind of casual dining chain and you were one really great Mexican, yeah. Indian, Italian yeah. place, every time you open another one, it kind of kills, kills the dream a bit. Yeah. And so I think that's really helped us. You now, as you mentioned, have 60 um, restaurants. You've just opened your first store in America. So the business is going from strength... Yeah, I should say John. So I'm a shareholder and I speak to John and cheer him on. So he opened the first one. And we, but he, he, he did the he, deal. He did the, he did he did the heavy and lifting. He did the heavy lifting on that. And I, I am actually thankful. I say a little prayer to him every day and amazed because if it's hard with a consumer business... There's a certain kind of difficulty about starting up, all that crap you have to do that is, bears nothing, no response to the customer. But as a consumer business grows more customers, like the gale of customer feedback and of events that you stand in every day to keep your head when that's going on and not go insane, I think, I'm not sure I could, I could take Leon from, from 60 to... 600 and i definitely think he can so i'm so thankful for gosh for what he's doing um, but yeah so we've got we've got washington and washington you know we said we joked about washington said like if it works if on day one we make money it doubles the share price and if we don't it halves it and it, it's making money which is just kind of amazing oh. the other one i'm even more excited about actually in the u.s in a way, because it reinforces the brand promise, is John did a deal to open in the airport in Gran Canaria in the Canary Islands. And because that is a travel destination, it's genuinely, you would think, if ever you're going to have the excuse to eat McDonald's, you do it there. Yes. yes. And the fact that that one's working is really exciting to me. When we opened in Carnby Street, we didn't realise, but Vogue's office was round the corner. Yes. So after about four weeks, we had all these kind of amazingly hot... Yes. Um, People who didn't look like they, girls. And, and me and John and Leg food. Negra, who was a lesbian, were all like, wow, <laughs> what do we do here? This is incredible. <laughs> but that's, you know, that's a, quite a niche thing. Yes. And so that's very different from Grand Canary. So that's really exciting. That one is almost more exciting than Washington. Than me. Washington. But on those first, when, when I think about who's listening and I think about small businesses and starting up, I'm visualising you pacing up and down Carnaby <laughs> Street. I'm visualising you thinking and talking to Johnny, you know, you've got a half the menu. This is not working out. What are we doing? How has this happened? What were those first months like actually nurturing this one business that you believed in but I'm sure gave you a lot of sleepless nights yeah so first of all I'd say and you know if if this is typical you know I'm sorry to reveal it which is it wasn't just that but it was the original thing and then once you got that one to make money you opened another one and then you had to get the group to make money which was unbelievably hard and then as we're growing we almost run out of money twice and I had a whole holiday where uh, in in with my mum and my uh, new baby and my wife in France, where I was on the phone twenty four seven, about to be have all my shares wiped out, trying to kind of save, I think eight years of work at that stage. So it's not like, certainly in my experience, uh, and again there are probably people who are better at it than me, but in my experience it's not like oh well you get over that first hump and then it's just like we I'll do some speeches and. And it's like, it's like and it constant, just sort of <laughs> constant hard work. John sometimes rings me up. So, oh God, Henry, it's such hard work. And I'm like, I know, it's a nightmare. So it's No, again, uh, and, I think anyone I've spoken to will yeah. also say it's just it's just pain that keeps on coming. Yeah, it is. So and, it can, and it can go, you know, and it can go from being you know, Vivian, who was one of our investors, South African, I don't know a very good South African accent, but when we had this thing of the kind of the the 
the break even. It felt like a wave of boat. We always had these projections and we were going to break even in the next six months or next year. And like we'd get to next year and then it was going to be next year. And, and it was like kind of bow wave of boat. Wherever you were, it was just about to touch it, but you never did. And then when we finally broke even, Vivian, who was one of our investors, I think we might have had, you know, said something slightly triumphalist in a no board meeting, like, well, broke even, made some money. And he said, Henry, what you have to remember is the good times never last as long as you think they will. And the bad times always last longer. It's like, thanks, Vivian. But he's right. But he's right. He was right. But like, I didn't need to be, didn't need to be yeah, told. Just on right. that little moment just where the me, party popper, you just wanted that party popper to go off at least a couple of times before giving the reality of yeah, so I it's think going the, to be the, hard The, the still. biggest problem with, I think the biggest issue with that is, uh, and I've actually worked with people who are much better at it than me, is that you need to develop a slightly sociopathic attitude to the business because if as is the case you imbue the business with well as can be the case you imbue the business with all of your sense of self-worth and self-esteem then you'll be like and then and the worst times as you'll know is when you're half awake in the middle of the night you wake up at four in the morning and just like all the problems mm -hmm. swirl around and you have to you know you either have to get up and, deal with, and deal with it or just say these are fake this is not what it'll feel like in the morning these are fake worries my brain's not working you know if you get into that state which i did many times you are not able to be think about the business as you need to which is in a kind of almost completely detached way so you need to have this kind of schizophrenic thing where part of you is absolutely passionate and driven and leading everyone over the top day after day and the other part of you is completely detached and have you figured that out uh, getting better at it. interestingly john you know, my instinct is to get stuck in i'm very good in a crisis i'm very good like at getting everyone up and keeping going and john once said to me henry you gotta you know you gotta remember it's about winning not fighting you know he almost thought like i had this which might be true, I had this kind of, I, I liked the fight. You know, I'd never, it was because I was good at it. That's yes, where I yeah. wanted to be. Whereas he wanted to be having, on a boat, <laughs> having yes. a nice holiday. Yes. I was like, Henry, what, for God's sake, get over it. <laughs> so I get, I'm definitely better at it. Yes, definitely better. You get, but also you realise, I mean, if you're lucky, the amount of luck I've had, I mean, I don't know if I had failed, whether, how I would have, how I would have turned that around and whether I would have been able to turn that around. That's an interesting question. Don't know. But because it kind of worked out so far, that then gives you the confidence. You know, once you've been near to the brink, uh, Which so, you have. A, a, yeah, a number of times, you get less worried about being near to the brink. <laughs> rightly or wrongly, you know. Yeah, but I mean, you, you, you have the war scars, don't you? And yeah, you can exactly. sort of, you, you know, you've been through yeah. pretty bad, bad times. Yeah. So yeah. You, the, the confidence to go into battle <laughs> yeah. again. And But when we go back to those first days, you would, you've learnt this over the course of your journey or career. You didn't know that no, right and, at the start. No, absolutely not. And so you, I would get things like, you know, I would get like you'd you'd pick up a card in the thing that sent that sent that said the music was bad or something, and you'd just get really stressed by that. Rather than now, you think, oh, we've got a card that says the music bad. Is the music bad? Yeah, let's change it. You know, <laughs> whereas yeah. when you're at the beginning, it's like every bit of negative feedback is saying you're gonna fail. You're going to lose the money that people have given to you. And, yes. then, and then what are you going to do then? Because you've got nothing. No one's going to hire you. So that is, that, that, I don't, that's the evolution. That's the, yeah. So the, as you get, you know, older, gnarlier, wiser. And then sometimes you look back and you think about some of the kind of things that you did and reaction. You just kind of go, oh my God, you know, it's like terrible shame. Did I really get so worked up about that? What was I thinking? <laughs> Each week, I sit down with a cup of tea and write my weekly Friday email, Holly's Desk Notes. I share everything I've been up to, thinking about or working on in the past week. I genuinely love it. And it's a real moment in my week when I stop, sit down and put pen to paper. 
You'll often find recommendations for my favourite small businesses and what they create, details of places or events I've been to or think you'd love, recent articles from our advice hub, the latest Holly Loves collections, or perhaps sharing what's been happening in my world outside of Holly & Co., Not only that, but by joining our email community, you'll be the first to hear about all the exciting updates throughout the year. Be that our shop independent campaigns, our tours across the country, and let's not forget the independent awards. If you'd love to hear our latest news, advice and inspiration, follow the link in the description below to join our newsletter community or head on over to holly.co where you can easily sign up. Now, let's get back to our conversation of inspiration. I believe passion starts very young and can lead you through life. And it's the ability to turn this into a business, what I'm calling good life businesses, doing actually what they love. Where do you actually think the passion for food actually stemmed from? Well, my mum sold two million cookbooks, Jocelyn Dimbleby. And without TV, I think she's probably sold more cookbooks in the UK without ever being on TV than anyone else. And in the 80s, you know, one in two dinner parties was a Jocelyn Dimbleby dinner party. And actually, mum was always the person who she would always get, still does, give me feedback on, like really specific feedback on the food and gave us a couple of recipes. So I think that's where, and we always had, you know, because of her cooking, she was always cooking for everyone. All of our family life happened over kind of big, loud meals. And I, you know, Tracer, and she's my, actually my relationship with her, because I'm kind of, you know, probably like some men, not always best at uh, having emotional conversations. Uh, And therefore, my relationship with my mother is very strongly through food. So we will, she will ring me up and tell me about something we're cooking. I will ring her up and say, oh, I'm doing this, but this has gone wrong. What should I do about it? Um... She'll send me an email just telling me about something that was delicious that she cooked the night before. So uh, that relationship that's your, is that's completely that's your bond by food, between. Yeah. So that's probably where the food thing came from. You're from a dynasty of journalists too. Your father is the renowned David Dimbleby, and your grandfather was Richard Dimbleby, who was the BBC's first war correspondent. Who, incidentally, I just listened to his Desert Island Discs the other day with Roy Plumley. And I loved the story of when he went into the bunker where Hitler committed suicide before the British got there. And he pinched the knife, fork and spoon with Hitler's initials on them. And he said whenever anyone comes around to dinner that he didn't like... He used to give them the spoon to eat their soup with. (laughs) Now, I'm fascinated. I mean, what a story. Who has that spoon now? And have you carried on the tradition? So that cutlery is my... uh, uh, Richard's wife, my grandmother Mimi, died a few years back. And that cutlery is now uh, in the house of her husband, Ronnie. She had two 25-year marriages, 25-year-plus marriages. Wow. The first ended by death and then another one until she died. She was very uxorial. Uh, so, yes, it's in Devon, the cutlery. We, I, as far as I know, Ronnie doesn't get it out and give it to people he dislikes. That's where it is. It's- I never met him. He died in 1965, so uh, five years before I was born. Um, but obviously he was a massive figure because he was... Also, there wasn't much telly at the time. I mean, there wasn't a lot of telly, so he, he did... You know, he did the Queen's coronation and Winston Churchill's funeral. And so he was like, if you speak to people of the older generation, he was kind of the voice of the BBC. Gosh. So, I mean, yeah. So I thought it was quite ballsy of my dad and my uncle to go and to, to follow that. There you go. Well, uh, <laughs> just a bit. And you followed in their footsteps too by writing for The Guardian. Was that another passion of yours? Well, no, so I wrote, interesting, so I didn't really follow in their footsteps in the, you know, well, doing question time and any questions is not quite right. I'm writing a column for a newspaper. <laughs> I did. So, I, I, you know, you talk about following your passions. I just kind of had a, my career has been a bit of a random walk. So I, I met Bruno Lube. I never trained as a chef. I met Bruno Lube, who was the Michelin-starred chef at the time of the Inn on the Park on Hyde Park Corner at a party. And so I did that. And then I went to be a gossip columnist at The Telegraph and then also kind of wrote a bit um, you know, in those days you could kind of go to parties and sell stories and you got paid 
think 50 quid per story. And then they offered me, I did that for a bit, and they offered me a full-time job. And I did that. And then I decided, because we had a family newspaper business called the Richmond Drickham Times, which my great-grandfather, Fred Dimbleby, had, uh, had bought and passed down to Richard and then to, to Dad. That's why I went to journalism. I thought, I'd better learn about journalism. So I went to be a journalist. And I thought, I'd better learn about business. So I had a friend called Claudia. I said, I would need to, who was at McKinsey at the time, consultancy. I said, I need to know about business. How do I learn about business? <laughs> what business people do. And she said, well, why don't you go and apply to be a consultant? I literally didn't know what P&L was or anything at that, at that point. And so I applied. McKinsey turned me down. I'd watched, oh, God knows what, I'd watched Xena Warrior Princess uh, before my interview. And uh, the, at the end of Xena Warrior Princess, they have a little kind of, you know, hokey kind of like, what's the moral thing? And the moral of the story in this one was that to be a leader, you had to listen as well as lead in Xena Warrior Princess, cartoon version. And it might have been She-Ra, actually. I had a lot of time on my hands. And in the McKinsey interview, they said, what do you think? How would you define leadership? And I said, well, the thing is about leadership is that you have to listen as well as lead. And in my rejection letter, they said, I don't think he's got the potential to be a leader. Fair enough. But Bain gave me a job. And I did You that. didn't use that line in that interview, though. I obviously didn't. And so then Bain gave me a job. And then... It was kind of at that point, you know, talking to John about the fast food that I realised that actually my passion was food and that I didn't like budget business enough just to make money and to do widgets and that I wanted to do something in food. And that's kind of... And then I think also there was kind of a, a real kind of sense of independence and wanting to work outside the system. And you also, it's just obvious that you, you have entrepreneurism in your blood. Now looking back, you can always connect the dots, but it, it felt, yeah, you know. It's interesting, Dad always thinks it, finds it absolutely baffling. He always says, you know, I was always just a kind of establishment figure and, you know, always... You were? So, no, he thinks he was. He's like, well, yeah. how did, how did you, you go and do this? I always played it safe. That's what he says. No, I, would, I wouldn't. I, mean, I think it's just Although looked actually, at differently, they, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. In just, the, it's the, the same thing exhibited It's the same thing, way. but just in a different time. So yeah. you mentioned now you've stepped away from Leon. You stepped down as CEO. You have John, who you are cheering on. What was that transition like? I'm someone who's been through transition in business, and I know it's not easy, especially yeah. when your business is... You know, Leon is, I'm sure, a child to you, something that yeah, is, yeah. it's been part of your tapestry. How did you find that transition? Uh, I think it's, it was really very difficult. A, it was very difficult. And B, looking back, I wish I'd done it two years earlier. So I think that part of the stubbornness that makes you a successful entrepreneur means that it is almost impossible to think about what is the right time to leave this business when should I hand it over to other leadership and if I look back I was knackered for two years and in the end it, it came down actually to John saying I, I think the business had lost a bit of energy John said to the board I want to run it and there was a big discussion about whether we run it together or whether that would work or not and uh, um, they decided rightly that John should have a go. He'd been on the side. We had run it jointly for three years or something, and I'd been doing it on my own for five or six with him working in it a bit and not. And they decided to give it a go, and he came in and just, like, gave it so much energy. And it was... So the process was very painful. As so Actually, as soon as the decision was made, I was really pleased immediately. Like, I immediately saw what the... What the benefit like, of like that yeah like that but at the time it's just so hard to let go and to kind of because you have to you you know you spent 10 years whatever it is telling yourself you know got to push it on got to keep going got to keep going got to keep going pick yourself up and i think there are there are entrepreneurs who are brilliant at starting and flipping things and you know good on them but i think that is the hard one of the hard really hard decisions i mean it's a luxurious decision to make because obviously most businesses go bust and so to have the ability to make a mistake about when, when you decide to leave a business is a luxury, but it's And a your relationship with John, you say you cheer him on now, but at that time it must have been a difficult... So I would say that my relationship with John has always been both incredibly strong and pretty charged. I mean, we get, we're, we're very similar, maybe too similar, and we get on like a house on fire, but... You, you have this weird thing when you have a partnership of 
there's someone else who is responsible with you for your future and the future of your family. And so when you're making a strategic decision, this is about uh, where I want to live in the future and what kind of life I want to have. And do I want to send my kids to an expensive school or do I not? Or do I, you know, you're kind of more tied to them than you are to your spouse. And therefore, constantly you have, um, as I said, amazing energy transfers and support and blazing rows because it really matters. The stuff really matters. So I would say that my relationship with John has always been both incredibly strong and quite fractious. Um, well, it's like a although it's not that fractious at the moment because he's, you know, he's doing a brilliant job. And it's actually, it's actually the, 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 it, since we started Leon, it's as good as it's ever been. As good as it ever, ha, yeah. ever has been. And it's, it's just, you know, when I started not on the high street, um, it was with my business partner, Sophie. And so you are, you know, so incredibly powerful when there's the power of two people driving something in the same direction. Um, you have different skill sets is what I mentor a lot of small businesses about is the power of two. It can be enormous. Yeah. Yeah. It's making sure, though, that you understand. And Sophie and I tried it when we started Not on the High Street. We did a, um, it was Sophie's idea, and she was very great at this. She created a little survey that we both did, a questionnaire, and we had all of these future questions. Bear in mind, we are eating baked beans, trying to set up Not on the High Street. Never yeah. had done anything like this. Um, we were in this little tiny um, above a taxi round office, but we did the survey, and it was basically, where would you like to be in five years time what is your aspirations for your family what is the worst things about you that you would not even ever admit to your husband write it you know tell me yeah, the truth yeah, yeah, yeah. and we actually because we wanted this very much to work we actually spilled the beans yeah. it is an incredible thing and it's it's you've got to be prepared to be married i would yeah. say well I, I also think i think i always think a child is actually not the right metaphor because there's only so much you can do to raise a child and basically they're a, a human and you know um they fuck you up your mum and dad you know they don't mean to but they do they gave you all the faults they had and whatever it is one or two just for you and um so you can't really control so we're, you know we're childering my, my wife we kind of try and do a good job but if one person wants to do one approach and the other wants to do the other it's like you know you go with it whereas with a business you're raising a child with this explicit uh, desire that it pay for your future life there is no independent thing that's going to go about its way in the world. So it is actually a much, much more difficult thing, I think, to uh, to do together as a joint enterprise than raise a child. That's an interesting... Um... Maybe I'm not spending enough time thinking about how to raise my children. There you go. <laughs> Maybe. You know, but would, no, I'm, I'm so, not saying you, that. I, I, <laughs> I, use, I use it, I think, very much because I, I try and help people understand that it's okay to love your business like that. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Actually, do not feel guilt for um, the fact that you are waking up at night thinking about it because it only has you. Yeah. And moving on, I wanted to talk about something I, I'm really looking forward to speaking to you about, founding the charity Chefs in Schools, yes. which aims to recruit 100 professional chefs for 100 state schools over five years. Can you tell me about how this came about and how you're taking it forward. It came about sort of by mistake in that John and I in 2013 were asked by Michael Gove, who was then the education secretary, uh, and he asked us to write the school food plan to set out how, we could, how you could improve food served in schools and the food culture of those schools, which we did. And as we were doing that, I happened to tweet because the chef at my kid's primary school, Gayhurst Community School, left. And I tweeted, you know, does anyone want to uh, do the cooking for my kids at their school? We're looking for a chef. And Nicole Pisani, who at the time was the head chef at Ottolenghi's Nopi restaurant, his kind of smart restaurant in, in London, was shown this by her manager. She had just given in her resignation because she had wanted to do something a bit more purpose and she was fed up just cooking for rich people for long hours. And uh, he gave this to her. She got in touch. Anyway, one thing led to another. And then she now cooks 
not only in that school and does the cookery lessons in that school, but also has brought in cooks for four other schools, for four, three other schools in Hackney. So professional chefs, one who worked at Ollie de Boo, one who worked at the Riding House Cafe, uh, who are now all cooking and teaching. And then every time uh, something was about it, a little bit was about it in the press, we used to get, we'd get approached by heads and by chefs saying, heads saying, can you help us do this? And chefs saying, you've got any jobs? This sounds wow. brilliant. And so earlier this year, we decided that we'd try and set this up as a charity, Chefs and Schools. Um, we got a fantastic board of patrons with Yotam, Otolenghi, obviously Nicole and Prue Leith, Tommy Myers, who founded Oaxaca, Carmel, who, run, who runs Magic Breakfast, which is another fantastic charity, Nick, uh, Louise, who's the head teacher at the school. And we are continuing in Hackney. We're setting up the School of Food, the Hackney School of Food, which is going to teach kids to cook, and also the community more broadly. We're doing School by School, which is pairing schools with chefs and training them up to do it. And then we are hoping to shout about it. So one of the things in the school food plan that was noticeable is that every school that was doing good things was doing it because a head teacher or a business manager or a chef had said enough is enough. You know, change is created by leaders. And what you what these people need is inspiration and information. So we're going to be campaigning to show that better is possible. So that if you are a uh, a parent, a governor, a head, and you want to change your school, you know that it can be done and you have information to draw on. So oh. that's that's the plan. I I just found it brilliant. When when you studied school chefs, I heard you say that they tended to feel low in status. And you spoke about how they were entering through the back door, not feeling actually part of the school team and how you've changed that, making them feel integral, giving them new skills, empowering them, inspiring them. Has has that been what's Yeah, happened? I mean, I would say it's so that th there's a kind of journey on this. So there was, it started with Jeanette Ory, who was the, the school cook who inspired Jamie Oliver. And then there was kind of his campaign. And then Pruley set up the School Food Trust. And that was a point where we were, it was really bad. And they said enough is enough when this is not acceptable we then came in a while after that work had been done and went to visit schools and as you say the schools that were where it worked they had a number of things in common they had someone who was leading it they focused on the child like what did they like to eat what was the atmosphere in the dining room and then they adopted a whole school approach which is where it wasn't just you got fed at lunchtime that was separate from the school it was completely integrated into the school teachers ate with the kids um, cookery lessons were part of it and the school cooks were part of the school uh, that literally literally in a lot of schools still in this country there is a different door that the school cooks will walk through than everyone everyone else who works in the school and a lot of people have improved schools in different ways and Nicole she took the school cooks in this school who had and she retrained them and so people like Susu uh, who had been opening stuff, is now a sous chef in Gayhurst. She makes all the bread from scratch, mm. saves about 100 quid a week buying bread because she bakes it all. And so you're not only creating a system where the kids are eating well, but you've got people who are cooking for them who are, have much more purpose in their lives and a kind of more interesting life because they're, they're, they're doing stuff and they're part of the school community rather than just people who come in and... and and feed the children like you kind of feed cattle. How do you feel about being involved in this? Is this something that you are very proud of, or is it is, is it a time to give back? I have a... I love starting things, and I'm quite good at making things real. And if I have any time, I'll fill it. So, you know, at the moment, after Leon with Jonathan Downey, I started London Union, the street food business, started set up chefs in schools. I'm currently at uh, a non-exec at DEFRA, where Michael Grove is. I'm about to start work on a national food strategy. So I kind of, I get excited by things and get, so I kind of got into it by mistake. And then obviously you've got to make it work. And I, it fills me, uh, watching what they're doing, what Nicole and Louise are doing, fills me with enormous pride in it, to the extent to which I can make, support that and make it happen. I love but as with all things, sometimes I think, God, why did I do this? That's yes. Like, why am I doing this? It was a good idea. It's two in the morning. <laughs> and I'm writing this letter for chefs and schools. 
<laughs> what was I thinking? <laughs> so I do get pissed off. So when people, and the reason I'm involved quite a lot in the state sector is I get irritated by business people who just kind of moan about the state and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But the point is, it's a major part of our country that defines as much as businesses what our country's like. And if it's so bad, don't sit around moaning about it. Go and do something about it. So I do feel kind of there is, I do feel that if you have been lucky enough to have done okay, I do feel there's a kind of obligation to try and help. Make change. Yeah, to try and make change, to try and support, go and work. Go and find something you think doesn't work in the state and work out how you think you can help. I agree. I'm currently looking at starting an entrepreneur's school where I believe that our children aren't necessarily getting the right lessons within school about when we realise that they're going to have a very, very different future to ourselves and it's going to require not just to be born an entrepreneur, actually you're going to have to be self-starting. You also must be around small businesses. You are involved in... uh, On that entrepreneurial thing, Yes, I think it is going to be so much harder for our for the next generation of entrepreneurs to make it i sat next to a dinner the other day chairman of some big company and like massively successful business person and he was telling me about how his like first thing had been working installing telephone networks in the middle east in the 50s and he was saying you know it was so easy we didn't have computers we didn't have spreadsheets it was about creating relationships work out what it costs on a piece of paper and getting on and doing it. You know, my God, I feel grateful that I wasn't growing up. I wasn't an entrepreneur at the time that you're an entrepreneur. And I feel like that with knobs on for the next generation. I just think yeah, it's, I agree. Get the, more info, the more information you have, the, just the harder, the more information, more people... Just a, it's a nightmare. So I think good, I, good for you. I, I, well, I, I agree. I agree. I think actually it's why purpose more than ever matters. I think, though, those are the ones that will be able to cut through. You are around, small, I'm assuming you're around, you're involved in Street Feast, incredible yeah. food markets around London, transforming derelict and disused spaces into unique eating environments, you know, bringing street food into communities. But it's it's helping entrepreneurs, food entrepreneurs, small businesses. You've obviously seen this around your career now, yeah. people starting up in the yeah. food industry, be it a budding chef starting out or a, um, a street food van. What advice would you give specifically or what have you seen as a common thing that people do that you would say to avoid? So I think that the, um, the biggest problem with starting up business is what John and I used to call high-level shit, which is all the stuff that, that is high, it's difficult enough to do that you can't delegate it. And anyway, when you're starting out, there's no one to delegate to anyway, but has nothing to do with what the customer perceives. Opening a bank account, tables and chairs, licenses, planning consent. You know, every business has it. And you could spend your life doing that. And the only thing that actually matters, the one thing that is uh, important in starting a business is revenue, is, is the stuff good enough? Is what you're doing good enough? And if what you're doing is good enough, everything else will follow. So if I look at, you know... In the street feast world, Dave from Smokestack, who does smoked meat, he just obsesses about it, and it is much better than anyone else's, and he makes much more money. Uh, someone who I met this morning, talking to her about expanding her business, really good friend of mine, Claire Patat, who runs Violet Cakes, who did the Royal Wedding. Not Eugenie's, the other one, Megan Markle. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, you know, her stuff, her business is successful because... She really sweats on the cakes. I remember once John coming into me and uh, and saying, "You know our wraps, Henry." And I was like, "Yeah." He said, "They're not very good, are they?" And I was like, "Aren't they?" And we went down and we tasted them, and they weren't very good. And what had happened is, over time, we'd made a number of changes for various good reasons, each which didn't change the thing. But we'd been blind tasting against the previous one. And actually, death by a thousand cuts, we'd ended up with something that was a bit average. 
-hmm. And it's that thing of through everything, just focusing on what it is that you are making the stuff. And that's all there is, you know. And a lot of people forget that. And they forget that. Yes, cash is also important. It's bad to run out of cash. But the stuff, if you don't have the stuff, you won't have the cash in the first place. You know, everyone's talking about, we talked about earlier on, casual dining. It's a tough time for casual dining. You look at the people who have gone into receivership or have had a tough time. And yes, it's really tough in casual dining at the moment. Rates are high. Rents are high. Minimum wage is tough. But the ones who've gone bust are the ones who weren't very good. And so just focus on that. Well, we're seeing it everywhere, aren't we? We're yeah. seeing it in, across the board. Well, you know, it's that classic thing of the tide going out and you see who's wearing trunks. I've never quite understood that analogy. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so you're obviously an incredibly busy man and you have three kids. My single most asked question is, how do I maintain a work-life balance? And I always love to hear fellow entrepreneurs answer. What would you say to that question? I would say, first of all, I think that the concept of work-life balance is a very dangerous one. So it suggests that somehow there's this thing that work which supports your life and then there's this other thing that's life and it's just kind of insane way of looking at things. There's just life. So um, integrate your family as much into your business as possible. In fact, one of the most wonderful things that happened with the School Food Plan was my wife, uh, who's a journalist, edited it. She used to edit the mm. week and she edited it. And we spent, like, we, we'd do it at night when the kids had gone to bed and we'd sit in an office, me drafting stuff and her editing it and sending it back and forth between us. And it was the most amazing experience because, you know, it's mm. like fantastic if your spouse really is that involved in what you're doing. You know, bring your kids. One of the great things, don't, don't be, uh, if you're an entrepreneur, don't be bound by the conventions of work. It, you know, the, one of the great things, but there are lots of really shitty things about being an entrepreneur. One of the great things are you are the boss. So don't be embarrassed about bringing your kids into work all the time or leaving early to take them to the, you know, to pick them up for school. That is one of the most amazing things about an entrepreneur is you have freedom over your time. I fall into it still. You know, there, there, there is this um, way that we have been brought up or we still have ingrained because a lot of businesses start because they've had a more corporate uh, experience let's say before they go into running their own businesses and they're still bound by the nine to five the am I working hard enough yeah. the, and they seem to just forget that they're actually working pretty much if not in their offices or wherever in their mind you know at least 20 hours of the day or 15 hours of the day yeah. so actually as, as you said it's that balance that, that the ridiculous notion of balance it is all at one and it's just fitting it in like a jigsaw puzzle you know yeah. it can be any way that you choose but you can choose and actually as you said it's tough enough as it is let alone then constraining your life to sort of be this nine to five where the whole point was you were getting out of the yeah, nine to five exactly. and have to have that fun to have exactly. that fun with it as well that if on a friday you're going to go out and, um, you know, take the whole afternoon off and maybe have yeah. a glass of wine with a girlfriend or something like that. That's okay because guess what? You're working on Saturday and Sunday. Yeah. You didn't get a gold star for it. Um, there's no one <laughs> looking at you. You didn't get any well done or anything like that. No so, one cares. The other thing is no one <laughs> literally no one gives a shit about you. Everyone is like wrapped up in the world. They don't care if your business goes bust, if it succeeds. They do not care. So get over yourself. Just get on with it. Well, on that, I could chat to you all day. It's really, really been such a pleasure. I use the analogy that running a business or running a small business as being on this epic roller coaster. Can I ask what you would say one of your greatest highs has been? I mean, it's it, it's a repeated thing, but it is pretty exciting. So um, John had a crisis and he was because of Leon in America, he was make, meant to be making a speech in Seattle. And he said, can you do the speech for me? I can't do it. And I happened to be having to go out to, happened to, be having to, go out to California. To live as you hell. do. As you do. Nightmare. And so I said, yes, I would. And I made this speech about Leon. And just people coming up who'd been to Leon in Washington and saying, I just think it's amazing. There's nothing, we have nothing like it. It's so delicious. And everyone's, everyone's so friendly. I love that when people say things about Leon. That is just such, you know, you think, 
I quite enjoy like growing flowers. It's the same thing. Yeah. It's easy, easier to grow flowers, actually. Maybe I should just grow flowers. <laughs> Maybe you should. But, yeah, but that feeling of when someone who's not connected to it says... Yeah, just wants to tell you. Yeah, wants to tell you that it's good. That's and and nice. on and on this roller coaster, unfortunately, we have the lows, and as we both know, there's many. There's quite a few dips, aren't there, um, along the journey? What's what's been one of the lowest lows? Well, actually, you know, we talked about the fighting spirit. My lowest lows don't come in the when things are going really badly wrong. I actually find that when you're when either you've just done a fundraising or got over something or opened something and it's that sense of anticlimax and that's when I find like after that after you've solved a problem and you're lying in bed and all the adrenaline's gone and you just think you know I don't want to get up and do this that's that's when I get really so yes when someone's about to throw you into the fire you're gonna fight it yes but like the aftermath of that and you have to think okay I've got to, we've got over that. I've got to kind of create the burning platform again and get everyone going again. That's kind of the times when I really want to kind of say enough is enough. Sit in a warm bath. (laughs) 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 Well, thank you, Henry. Huge congratulations to yourself and John. I just admire not only what you've built, but the fact that you are obviously burning to keep on fighting and now you're tackling great things within the schools, children's obesity, um, helping businesses who dream of food. And, you know, in your own little way, because I know you brush, you know, you are changing the world for the better. And finally, I ask my guests to prepare a letter to their younger selves, a moment to take a second to think about the journey and what they would say. So I'm handing over to you and what might you say to the younger Henry? Um, I listened to all your other ones and you cried. I'm not sure you're going to be crying at the end of this one. I did physics and philosophy, so I'm quite literal-minded. I did, I did logic, so I, I've, I've literally written it as if I was writing this letter. So this is what I actually probably would write. Dear Henry, Holly has told me that if I write this letter, she will give it to my younger self. That's you. But seeing as I don't remember getting it, I can only assume that either A, she failed, <laughs> B, it caused such vicious trauma that you've buried the memory so deep I can't now remember it. In this scenario, you also fail to act on any of the advice, you dick. Or C, as you receive this letter, space-time was rent asunder like something in Doctor Who, and you, the me that received this letter, is now living in a parallel universe from me, the me that didn't. And because you took my advice, you are more happy, successful and fulfilled than I am here. I'm going to assume that C is the case, because otherwise there isn't much point. So here's the advice I gave you in no particular order. One, don't wave your polyester pyjamas over a flame to see if they will burn. They will, and your back will be pockmarked with with melted plastic bits. And worst of all, you'll have to tell your parents how it happened. Two, don't run on lava. Three, don't drive too fast on that holiday in France, being told by your best friend's mum that he will have to accept that he will never be attractive to women again isn't much fun. Four, if you ignored three, don't worry. He recovers beyond everyone's wildest dreams. Five, this may amaze you, but girls really like sex too. Six, You'll end up doing good stuff that you enjoy. Follow those passions. What a privilege. If you aren't enjoying it, look up Dr. Robin Hart and talk to him before I did. Seven. If you decide to set up a business like me, don't feel you have to. Move fast and worry less. It's a bit like trying to make your way across a frozen river. Your instinct, if it's similar to mine, which I guess it is, will be to work out where the weak spots are, plot out the best routes, build bridges over thin ice. Meanwhile, a bunch of other crazy motherfuckers will just run across. Some of them will fall through, but the others will beat you across the river. Eight. I know what you'll be thinking about seven. I do actually know what you'll be thinking. What if I am one of the ones who falls through? 
Well, I have two answers to that. First, it's not a frozen river under that ice. It's a mass of warm, compassionate arms of your friends and family. Second, who do you think you are? If you don't succeed in changing the world, someone else will. Not everyone can be Steve Jobs, and as far as I can make out, he wasn't even very happy. But I do know that you'll be super miserable if you don't give it a go. Nine, try not to feel guilty when you aren't working. That's some of the best stuff. In fact, if you don't fancy ever working at all, put your entire 1997 bonus into shares for an online book retailer called Amazon. Ten, go to the seaside more. You really like the seaside. That's it. Have fun and come and visit me sometime. Lots of love, Henry. Oh, it's just brilliant. <laughs> Crazy motherfuckers going over the frozen ice. I mean, we've, we've covered a lot, but I, I don't think I'm ever going to forget that. And I don't know whether you wanted to dream that you were one of those people that were going to, to, to fly across that river. It was actually it was the best bit of advice. My friend Ed Haddon gave that, me that advice, and it was a change in the way I operated. He just said, you're trying to plan too much, and you just risk means it might fail. That is what risk means. And you've got to take it and accept that it might fail. Otherwise, you won't succeed. And, and otherwise... You use that analogy. I and if that, you do fail, you'll be caught because it's not cold. It's your family and friends picking you up as you fail. I just will never forget that. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a complete pleasure. Thanks. If you've enjoyed this episode with Henry Dimbleby, I'd love to suggest listening to my conversation with Will Beckett, the co-founder of Hawksmoor. You can find any of my past episodes by searching Conversations of Inspiration wherever you get your podcasts. And if we've helped or inspired you, would you mind rating and reviewing? Your support really does mean the world to me. It helps spread the word and will inspire more people to build a life they love. And for all our latest news, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter, Holly's Desk Notes, over at holly.co.